Hey there, and welcome to the Punched and Played podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Rose. I'm joined by Jonathan Baker. Hello. And Clint Broadbent. Howdy. We will also have a special guest joining us a little bit later in the show, and we'll introduce him when he arrives. This is the sometimes funny, sometimes analytical podcast all about board games and the unique experiences they create. So we'll start off the show by talking about some games that we've played recently. Clint, why don't you talk about what you've been doing recently? Okay, so I actually had a chance to to play a game called Camel Up, and that was one of the games that I've been really wanting to try to play. I was a big fan of Splendor last year, and I was telling all my friends, I was like, you really got to play this Splendor. It's a fantastic game. It's like a fantastic gateway game. I I was positive that that Splendor was going to win the Spill the Jar. So I was like, I'm gonna, I bet the farm that this is thing, not forgetting that, you know, that it's always a crazy thing. But to my surprise, Camel Up won the Spill the Jarus. And I thought that that was, I was just, my job was on the farm. Like Splendor is like the perfect Spill the Jarus game. And so my friend got a copy of Camel Up and I had the opportunity to, uh, to play it. And I was kind of raising an eyebrow thinking, yeah, this isn't going to be as good as, as Splendor. So we got up to the table, and it was pretty darn good. The idea is that you're betting on camels, and the camels move a certain amount of numbers, and they can, like, ride on top of each other, and uh, you can you can bet on which camel is going to be in the lead at the end of the round and what camel can, what camel is going to be behind. It was it – was, it's, it's a really simple game, but I was – I was pleasantly surprised. Um, have you guys had an opportunity to play it? I have not. I haven't heard of this one. Uh, is this Camel Cup you're talking about? Mm, oh, yeah. I swear, my family thought that too. They were like, is this, I, where are the cups? Where are the cups? It says Camel Cup. But no, it is It is a really, I was pleasantly surprised. I still, I still think that Splendor should have won it, but I really thought it was a good one. I walked away. I of course I went turned around and said this is a perfect game. It goes I think it goes, it goes up to like seven or eight people. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it plays it really. It plays seven or eight really well. I think it moves around pretty fast. I really thought it was a good thing. So if you like um, one of my other favorite games that is in kind of the same vein is uh, Horse Fever. Have you guys had a chance to play that one too? We played. I don't think it was Horse Fever. What was the game we played with Bruce? Was it Longshot? That's what it was. Longshot, yeah. So Horse Fever is like a a weird, a tripped out version of that. Like the artwork, it's from Italy. It's from the same guys that did Dungeon Fighter. So you had, it's the Dungeon Fighter. So it has a kind of wacky artwork with these crazy looking horses. And you bet on these horses and you can do weird things to them. You can like feed them hot sauce or, you know, (laughs) or feed them like these bad grapes or whatever. And like, so like they, you can like either, and you do it in secret. So you hide and you can do different things to the horses and then you bet on them. And one of, one that went over really well, it was a little convoluted, a little fiddly, but this game was I think it was just it was it's a perfect little gateway game. You could gamers, non gamers. It was a great time. We had a lot of time. It was real. It was really good. So I I would recommend it, even though in my mind it, it it was just a little bit. They have like a little weird gimmick, like this little like a pyramid that you can turn it upside down and yeah. then you drop out the dice. That's the cup, right? Yeah, the the, the pyramid cup. Like people are thinking that that was really cool. Uh, it, it it was it's cool. 
but I would have just been just as good, just as fun, like grabbing a, like grabbing a dice out of a bag, grabbing a die out of a bag and then rolling it. It's it's cool, but I I don't know. I I thought it was like I said. I thought it was good. It's it's a it's a buy for me. Okay, that's interesting because I've I've seen it in the store. I've I, I saw I was kind of following the Spiel des Jahres nominations this last year, and I, again I was a little surprised by that, but I I just. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of on the fence, kind of along with Cult Express. I know it's a completely different game, but it takes about 30 minutes to play, or? Yeah, I would say about 30 minutes. It, like I said, it goes really quick. You know when you're trying to teach new people, and it's like if you show them like an hour game, you're like, I'm straddling like the point where I'm going to lose them. No, everybody was pretty engaged. There were a little couple times where like when you do the bets, you go around in a circle and sometimes somebody, they could have like a bad beat because you can only bet on a certain thing. So you can only say yellow is going to win once. Like only one person can bet that yellow is going to win or a certain amount of people are going to bet. I'm not sure if it's just one, maybe one, one or two. But like if if like yellow's way ahead, like yellow might not be beat, but like somebody that's in the end of the thing, they have no chance of betting on that. Okay. So, I mean, and then, then the next turn can come up and then they might not even be able to do it again. I mean, the turn order is kind of a little wonky, but really a solid game gives you that racing feel like you're yelling you're screaming um and it can be really swingy because what ends up happening is you can have they the camels move in different things so like if you if you think if the pyramid pops out like a blue die the blue who might be in the last the last place they may hop on the number two guy then the the second to last person, that second to last person might be the next die that comes up, and then they can hop on the die, they can hop on them, hop on the next person, and they can you can get this really weird cascade effect where the person that's like way the the camel that's way behind can hop on a, a camel and just like ride him to the thing because the camel on top is the one that is in the lead, so. You can, like I said, you can hop on a camel and ride them out, and you can have these really crazy swings of luck. And, Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's really great for it's really great for uh, betting, and uh, some crazy stuff happens. It, it's it's definitely a, a fun trip. I think it's I think it's forty bucks. So, I okay, mean, it's pretty good price. I'd like to give it a shot. I want to try it before I buy it. I've I've gotten I wouldn't say burned, but I, I think I'm at a point in my board game collecting phase that I need. I want to try games before I commit to them when we uh when it finally gets back in stock uh we'll have to try it because i it'll it'll be on my list sounds good jonathan what have you been playing lately well i uh got an expansion pack for lord of the rings the card game and played the first one uh, after cause of doom uh gate of redhorn gate and played that with my daughter we had two dwarf decks we had uh dane going we had uh thorn going we had the full thing going and she had just massive amounts of allies she was getting an extra resource and an extra card draw for having five or more dwarfs out. And she was just really getting a lot of stuff going. And we got hit in the third questing phase with snowstorm and or everybody lost a willpower. And then maybe we got two of those back to back. And and then Karajas was the active location. And if you don't have willpower, if your willpower drops to zero, you die immediately. So on one turn, she lost nine allies and I lost a couple people and uh, even though we were about to finish it, we made a big push and tried to finish it. We we lost it on that turn, and and that was it. We froze to death on Karajas, So, would you say that the end was nigh? Oh yeah, <laughs> it was it was pretty bad. Other than that, I uh, played Kingsburg recently. 
And then um, a few other things I'm going to say for our uh, main topic. Yeah, main, main topic. Sounds good. I got to play Castles of Burgundy for the first time. As the two of you know, I love Stefan Feld. He's my favorite designer. No. Just, there's an eye roll. That doesn't show up in the audio, but there was a definite eye roll there. So Stefan Feld has not been my favorite designer. I know, Jonathan, you're, you like Bruges quite a bit. I've played Bora Bora, and I've played a couple of other ones. And I was at BGG Con. I, uh, my friend Olivia and Francisco were trying to convince me to play Aquasphere. It looked neat, but mm, I don't know. There's something about his games that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But I I really did enjoy Castles of Burgundy. I definitely believe that's probably one of his strongest games. What did you like the best? I th- that's a good question. I, I one thing I don't like about Stefan Feld. Maybe I'll talk about what I don't like first. That might help me to get to what I really do like about it. I don't like all the crazy iconography and oh this gets you points and that gets you points. I don't like that point salad sort of approach. I don't know why. I feel like this game didn't do that as much. There was a little bit of the iconography with trying to figure out what the different buildings did. But I liked being able to figure out where I wanted to place to try to get to some different combos and stuff like that. Especially with the place in the castles, you can really kind of get multiple things on the board. Because that playing a castle on your board allows you to take an extra action of your choice. Which is really nice. And those went pretty fast. But... It was kind of fun being able to see what everyone else's strategies were. And then, like, I, I noticed that both of my opponents were playing, going very heavy with the mines. So I didn't build a single mine the entire time. I, I actually completed all of my ship tiles. Mm-hmm. Door order is important. And I really went the to town on the shipping. Mm-hmm. And I racked up a ton of points with that. And I was able to get some of the yellow tiles, which gave me bonus points for... Uh, shipping different colors of goods, and I was actually able to ship five out of the six different colors of goods and racked up a ton of points. So I think my total final score was 205 for my first game. Wow. So, I, I, again, I enjoyed it. I think I, I like the having to use those dice to be able to play, figure out what you can actually, what tiles you can buy and put in reserve, and then also trying to plan out which spaces on the board you want to reserve and play later. So I like the kind of the, being able to plan ahead and kind of see things fall into place. Did, did you win with that? I did win with that. Really? Yeah. Because uh, mines, mines are usually a really strong way. One of the things I've been thinking about this because I'm I'm a big I'm a big Stefan Feld fan. I I like the point salad. I don't I I like it and dislike it. I like how there are multiple ways to victory. Yes. That usually like in a game, just take a game like Through the Ages is one of my favorite games. It feels like a super solid build. But if you don't get certain things, you're doomed. Like you'll really get hit. I like that there's so many different there's so many different ways of getting points. It also really resonates with my wife. It's one of my wife's favorite games because I feel like even though like she's won before, even if she doesn't do well, she can feel like, oh yeah, I remember that time when I got like thirty points off doing this one move or this type of thing. And I kind of was wondering what was good with Steffenfeld. And I feel like the reason why Castles of Burgundy, most people like it, is because the clamps aren't on. Sometimes Steffenfeld, I think when he's on it, when he, when his games are not as good, he really restricts the movement. Like you really, like there are just tons of these stumbling blocks that kind of get in your way. 
I've heard that like in Aquasphere. I haven't played it, but everybody I've talked to say says that you know it feels like they that there are these like imaginary roadblocks that just are purposely trying to slow you down. And I feel like in Castles of Burgundy, the only big roadblock that you have are those dice. I was going to say the exact same thing. Uh-huh. And then, but the cool thing is with those dice is that almost all the abilities that you're getting, whether it be the castles, whether it be like the, the little workers that can plus or minus dice. Oh yeah. You can mitigate that. And so after a little while you start feeling like you start feeling powerful over those dice that even while there's a little bit of chance, I can change that. I really feel like you can still roll like the worst roll ever and it can kill you. But for the most part, there is a really good feeling. I think that's kind of the reason why Castles of Burgundy resonates with people is, is that there isn't like a barrier that like hops out in front. It's like at the start of the game, it's like those I'm at the mercy of the dice, but then I can start getting control over it. Absolutely. Those workers, if those workers were not in that game, I think I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much because I think I agree with you completely that having that ability to kind of influence those dice and that's really, the workers were really what bailed me out a lot of times. I was not rolling what I needed, but I was able to actually, I think in one turn I actually had to use two workers to move a die down two pips. And that really bailed me out quite a bit because I was able to then activate a good combo that got me a lot of points. Mm-hmm. So It's kind of like if it's that same kind of thing for me is that if you didn't have those miners, like for me... The longer a game goes, the less luck I want in a game. Sure. Or the more I would be, want to be able to mitigate that luck. That game can roll on. How was your game around ninety minutes? Two. It hours? was around that. I think it was around two hours. Yeah. If you get if it gets for me, if you get a game pass about it, about ninety minutes, I I need to have. I can't be at the mercy of the dice all the time. So I think that for me, I feel like it hits kind of that sweet spot of I feel like I can mitigate the dice. Or I can feel like I can manage my luck a little bit more. That usually, like I said, a dice game like that, if it would go that long, I'd, I'd, I'd go crazy. Right. Now, Jonathan, this is a game that you've been wanting to play again, right? Yeah, I played it once early on in my uh, you know, exposure to hobby board gaming. It was late at night, and I really... I remember it, but I don't remember it that clearly. I'd like to give it another try. Well, I'm actually tempted to get... I know you own it already, Clint, but this is a game that uh, we went to a game store in Oklahoma City, and my wife saw some people playing that game. She's like, what's that game? She was describing it. I was trying to figure out what game it was. and like, oh, okay, I think it's Castles of Burgundy. Yeah, I was really hesitant because of my lackluster exposure to failed games in the past, but this might be one that I actually uh, decide to pick up. Yeah, $40 MSRP. Most of his games are are in that $40 and it's just like that's pretty sweet. You and I've even found on, found on Amazon it was around uh, less than 30 I think it was around $25. Yeah. So And for that type of game it, it's, solid, it's very replayable too like the different mats. You can also like I've got some mats like from magazines mm-hmm. from the Spiel magazines. You got a lot of diversity there. The tiles never show up the same way multiple times. Really, it's definitely high up there as in my favorite games. The theme is barely there, but it's really it's really quite a fun game. Yeah, and that's the thing that really has kind of pushed me away from it was probably the theme. I was excited about the theme for Aquasphere because like, oh, it's different. But I'm like, oh, this seems like it's more of the same thing that you kind of expect from Feld. So, so one thing that I did not mention a couple of weeks ago, we, I mentioned Tail Feathers was one of the games that was announced at the New York toy fair but just the other day i found a piece of news that i had completely missed but has me ecstatic legends of andor is going to be 
all the expansions are going to be printed in English. Yay! I I don't I don't know what it is about Andor, but that I feel like it is such a criminally underserved game. It's a lot of people kind of push it off to the side because they feel like it doesn't have a lot of replayability and the experience of it is just fantastic. And I know that Rado has been a big proponent of this trying to challenge this idea that it doesn't have a lot of replayability. Uh, Scenario 3 actually has a good amount of replayability. It's kind of hard for me to get people to play it, but I, I've been able to find a few people that have been really excited to keep going with it. But I'm, I'm very, very excited to see those expansions finally get put out in English, since Fantasy Flight seems to have no interest in printing those. Yeah. But Cosmos is, I think, is work some, working something out to get that printed out over here. So that's great. That's exciting. So our central topic for today is all about Kickstarter games. Okay. Get out your get out your wallets. I know. So Jonathan is still our Kickstarter virgin. He has not jumped into the, uh, the pool of Kickstarter. I keep trying. <laughs> well, we need to get you to try a little harder, I guess. There, there have been some things that have pushed you pretty close, but I thought we'd kind of look at some of the current games on Kickstarter, but also possibly some older games that we have either backed or things that we have enjoyed from Kickstarter in the past. Okay, I'll start us off. My first game would be Valeria Card Kingdoms, okay? This is one that I stumbled across on uh, BGG and uh, actually printed out. They've got a print and play file up on their Kickstarter, also on BGG, and printed out kind of the base game. There are some variations and stuff included with with the actual Kickstarter. But basically what you do is you you roll the dice. uh, You have two dice, and you take both numbers on the die, on each die, and then you add them together, and then all three of those numbers you get, you get to trigger cards in your tableau. And you'll start off with a peasant who triggers on a five and gives you gold, and you, a knight that triggers on a six and gives you strength. And it's set in kind of a fantasy world. You uh, recruit different citizens. They trigger on different numbers of the die. And then you try to build up your gold and your strength and your magic, which is kind of a wild resource. And then you either fight enemies for victory points or you buy domains for victory points that give you some kind of special ability also. And then you also start the game with a duke who will give you some sort of extra bonus point condition. And each one of the citizens has a little symbol on them, either soldier, holy, shadow, or um, worker. And then you'll get bonus points for all those symbols. So it's somewhat reminiscent of Machi Koro, but I really like the way that you take both numbers on your two dice and then you add them together and take that number two and you trigger of course uh, different effects trigger on your cards on other people's turns when they roll those numbers too so and i also really like the different resources too and this game actually surprised me quite a bit i had not heard of it until jonathan actually presented it and he had the kind of print and play version but i like it a lot it's it's a really strong game I've played Machi Koro once, and I, when I played it, I felt like I was missing something. I know that the Harbor expansion is supposed to help remedy some of those issues that people have with the game, but for some reason, the, the, the ability to be able to not just add up the two dice, but to be able to use the individual dice to activate your cards really adds a lot. Because when, when you were playing Machi Koro, you roll, and you're like, oh, I didn't, get, I didn't get to activate anything. But this one kind of helps to rectify that a bit. 
there are still some turns where none of your cards do activate, but you're still able to at least get some resources and kind of plan from there. And you can still possibly kind of make up for that if other players roll the dice that you need. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way. I thought that uh, when Jonathan brought it out, I had played Machi Koro multiple times and it had gone really well with my family. But I was surprised at playing it. It feels like it's about just a little umph. It's like a little tier higher and like there's just a little bit more going on. I really like the same thing. I feel like you get instead of one action or at least one thing triggering, it's it, you get three. It definitely makes for you feel like you're doing a lot more like when it's not your turn. Each die is a, can help you. And uh, I thought there were some nice little combos that we were doing. It was, yeah, it was really fun. I would, uh, I'm definitely checking that one out. Yeah, and the sad part about this one is it's still a couple thousand away from uh, funding as of the last time I checked it. So we need to get on that. And uh, by the time this episode releases, you probably got about a week and a half. Yeah, currently there's 20 days left. So yeah, they're looking for a goal of $14,000. Again, they're about $3,000 short of that. But I I really feel like I'm kind of surprised that this hasn't gotten more traction because I feel like it does add something more to that Machi Koro because people were really excited about Machi Koro. For some, I think the theme will appeal to some people more than others. But I know that, Clint, you were able to play your first game just a little while ago. And you had said that you were a little concerned about bringing this particular game out with family and friends. For me, it's the it's the age-old debate between like Shadows Over Camelot and Battlestar Galactica that I, I own both of the games. And people ask me, those two are very, very similar. Which one's the better game? And I, I wholeheartedly believe that, for me, Battlestar Galactica is the better game. But Shadows Over Camelot, I play more with my family or with you know people that aren't of the like they don't play games all the time so i think that this one is they're very similar but i would i would bring out machi koro with my family but with with us as like in our game group i would it would be hard for me i really like i really like this one yeah so i'm I'm definitely considering it i think to be able to get the uh the game with with the stretch goals it's going for 29 dollars, which i think seems reasonable and the print and play version doesn't include everything so i'm really kind of excited to see what the full version looks like so i'm, I'm definitely considering checking this one out so one of the other games that jonathan and i are really kind of excited about i've already backed it jonathan i'm are you going to back this game <laughs> I really want to. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to. Uh, okay, well, at least one, we'll still have a game, a copy in the group, okay? And this game is above and below. Now, Jonathan, you were the one that actually introduced me to this game. You sent me the artwork and showed it to me. Yeah, I've been following it for a while. As soon as I heard about it, I was like, oh. I mean, you know, building your 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 little village... And then kind of the storytelling elements of uh, a little bit like Tales of Arabian Nights. Yeah, that, that's what's really interesting. You kind of have your kind of your worker aspect to the game, and you're kind of building your civilization. But again, that narrative aspect, kind of channeling that uh, Arabian Nights or um, Agents of Smirsh, I'm really excited about this. I really wish that there were more games that introduced that narrative aspect, kind of like what Dead of Winter does by adding those Crossroads cards. This is a little bit different, but 
the artwork is absolutely stunning in this. And I was going to say, I love Ryan Lockett's artwork in all of his games. Yeah, and you own a couple of his games, right? Yes, I do. He was actually a guy, a friend, a guy that I've met when I was going to SaltCon. Yeah, his art is just beautiful. And I really love... I really love how he de- he designs. He's this is him as an artist, but I mean he, I love a lot of his games because his artwork reflects his games. You think of it like when you design a game, sometimes you're just like, well, what does this look like? And and when he designs his own games, he he you know he's like, this is what it looks like, and this is what the game thing. And I I just love that, and his his artwork is gorgeous. Yeah, when I when I first saw the game, like all the different uh, village cards. So the idea here is that your your village has been wiped out, and you're going to be trying to rebuild your village above ground. But there's also these underground caverns that you can explore and actually develop and build your your civilization underground as well. So that's where that's where the above and below comes from. But the idea is whenever you go below, you're actually going to go and explore, and you can never go exploring by yourself. So you always have to devote two workers to be able to go and explore. And that's where the narrative aspect comes in. So as you explore, there'll be different cards, and you'll go to different paragraphs, and you'll have a little scenario. The one thing that I'm a little, I'm not quite certain about how it's going to work is that a lot of the narrative aspects tie in with die results. So instead of kind of giving you that choice of, well, this is what I want to do, you may not be able to do the other option because you just think that, you're not going to be able to get the die results that you need to be successful in it. So I think that's a little bit of a reservation I have is just perhaps there it kind of maybe telegraphs to a certain extent which is the better option. I don't know since I haven't got to play the game, but just being able to see some playthroughs, that's just my the slightest little quibble I have with it at this point. But I still think it's going to be an amazing experience, and I'm really looking forward to it. And that that game only is going to have a couple days left by the time this podcast goes uh, goes up. So um, if you have not checked out Above and Below, you definitely need to look into it. It's well beyond its set goal, and I believe they're actually getting close. There's two actual two levels you can actually back this game at. You can just do the base game. I think for $42, and then if you wanted to get the extended version, you can pay 50 and you'll get some stretch goals with that as well. So I think at this point, I'm just wanting to check and kind of see where we're at with everything. Yeah, there's if they hit 130k, they'll make some of the tokens wood, but I think if they can hit 85, which they're almost there right now, they'll actually unlock most of the add-on content for the game. So very excited for this i really want to try it out quite a bit so yeah i mean i've i have a bunch of his games and and i haven't played a game of his that i haven't liked or that hasn't been really solid so sometimes when you think well oh this guy like red raven games is i believe his Mm -hmm. and i don't think he's put out a bad game so yeah i haven't been able to is it city of iron is what city of iron is my favorite of his and you two have played that and I, I saw you playing it and i was like wow this looks really pretty neat so it, it, you you're a fan of that one yeah i've been able to play it a couple times i think that when me and jonathan played it was a two-player game i like it more with with three or four three okay. is by the minimum i mean two actually it it works pretty well but i feel like you miss kind of that that interaction that you would normally get yeah, and that's a big thing. Is like I, I really want to find at this point. I really like to be able to find games that scale well between two to four or something like that. So, 
But is there anything in particular about Above and Below that has you really excited about it? I, I just, number one, the art. You know, I'm a big art guy. I see something and it draws me in just looking at it. And then I love the idea of, you know, starting restarting your civilization there, deciding if you're going to focus on, you know, building above ground or you're going to spend more time exploring and kind of push your luck a little bit. Uh, it also has a kind of interesting market where you can set the value of different resources uh, by when you turn them in. And I, I thought that was pretty nifty, too. And, of course, the narrative is just it's a really good idea. It's really interesting to have the little stories that you build in that you remember about your village as you're building it yeah and talking about the art when i first i saw some playthroughs i know rado did a playthrough and if you don't know much about the game definitely check out his playthrough because it kind of gives you a really great feel of how the game flows but all of the above ground and below ground buildings were exactly the same i was like oh it's kind of a missed opportunity but i looked on the kickstarter and he's actually doing uh unique art for each of the different buildings and i'm like okay sold so mm -hmm. So that's I'm I'm really excited about that. So uh, it's supposed to be coming out by the end of the year. One thing that we should probably mention with Kickstarter. I mean, how many games have you backed, Clint? If you can estimate, I'd say probably between ten or twelve. Okay, I, I think I'm maybe around that level, maybe a little less. How many of those have been delivered on time? Uh, I think that would be uh, zero. <laughs> I've actually, uh, the first game I backed, and it was just this random little card game. I don't even know how I come, came across it. It was the White Elephant card game. Mm -hmm. Just a, this, I, I was looking for a White Elephant gift, and I'm like, well, that's perfect. It's the White Elephant, the card game. So I actually, it was the first game I backed. I think that one actually did deliver on time, or it might have been just a little bit late, but I think that was probably the best result that i've been able to get every other game i think that i've backed has been delayed by to some extent yeah i uh you know actually now that i think about it uh let's see coconuts by mayday games mm -hmm. i think that that was that one was delivered either on time or within like two weeks of when they said that it was going to be so i mean it, it's there like it happens but i've also had some that like were a, over a year late I've had the whole. I've run the gamut with that. I've been burned a couple times. So, but all of the games that you've backed have been delivered eventually. Uh, yes, all my board games that I've backed have gone. There's been other game, other like I've backed some video games that did not make it. So it happens. So one of the games that I backed way back in 2012 is Storm Hollow. It went by the name of Story Realms, and Jonathan's actually the one that introduced this to me. You're the shady dealer in the corner. <laughs> hey, 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 kid, come over here. I got this Kickstarter. Come look at this game, Sean. <laughs> More than once you've said, hooray, Sean's backing it. <laughs> so uh, Story Realms kind of takes aspects of an RPG and a board game, so they call it a storyboard game. So it's kind of this, they create this massive world for you to kind of explore, allows you to bring in a family kind of vibe to it, but it's got a nice storytelling element to it, got a ton of stuff, lots of scenarios, it kind of gives you a guide for creating your own stories and all that, and it just looks amazing. It's like a toolkit almost of being able to kind of be able to explore this world. You actually get a pack of items that you can use, and you're telling stories, and it looks really, really cool. It looks like it really kind of bridges that gap between a board game and an RPG that could be family-friendly. 
so I'm I'm very 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 excited about this. When they were actually one thing that actually caught my mind, uh, attention when I was looking at it, they even had a curriculum guide for educators. So if you wanted to back it, you could actually they're going to put out this curriculum guide of how to tie it in with your classroom. And being an educator, my wife being an educator, I was really kind of excited about that. So they are making progress on this game. No, 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 no. Definitively, they are making progress. They've had some setbacks. The project is massive. It is massive. I'm really kind of astounded that they've managed to put this much unique artwork, lots and lots of text. I think there's going to be two or three actual bound books uh part of the kickstarter campaign is that you actually were able to get some of the books were going to be uh hardback bound books wow so it's going to be pretty impressive when they actually get out they've been making a lot of slow progress they had some health delays and some other issues but they have been making forward progress and really making sure they're letting people who have backed kind of know where they're at they even offered refunds to people which they're not you know they're not obligated to do but they realized that it took a lot longer than they thought, but this is kind of a, pa- a a work of passion for them. They really want to make sure this thing comes out, and yeah, I'm really excited. We'll see what happens when it comes out. It probably won't. I'll be surprised if it comes out this year. It might, but I have a feeling it might be 2016 when it finally finally comes out. So yeah, well, it's good that they keep you up into date. Most of the times, I find that most Kickstarter people that get in trouble are the ones that drop off the map for like three or four months yeah. and like nothing, no updates or whatever. You know, it, it's tough and it's hard because it's a trust thing. A lot of times for backing these games, you're just like, I'm just floating you money on this project that you're quote unquote promising to mm-hmm. to give me. So I mean, it is. It's tough. And this one was supported by Game Salute, so I'm like, okay, well, you know, some people don't like Game Salute, but I've had a pretty good experience with them for the most part. But I think they've gotten all of the text done, all the artworks done, and I think they're getting ready to pass everything over to the publisher to get it printed. So it, it's coming. Um, it might come out this year. I'm fingers crossed that it will because I'm really excited to see. And what's great is that it's probably a, a great thing that it's actually taken so long because my my first son actually might be old enough to actually <laughs> actually experience this thing. So Good job finding that silver lining. There you go. There you go. So uh, one thing I thought we'd kind of talk about are what are the things that get you excited about a Kickstarter? And it, I know it may not be enough to get you to back it, but what is that thing that draws you in that makes you tempted to back one of these games? I'm just kind of curious what your perspective is. Well, everybody's looking at me. So, uh, the uh, for me, what what draws my eye to, to these things usually is the art catches me first. I mean, the above and below art was fantastic. Uh, the Valeria art is pretty good too. I like it quite a bit. But other than that, I usually I, I will take the time to watch some of the videos. I will watch reviewers who have have put something out over a Kickstarter, and just see what the gameplay is. Rado has almost talked me into several of these games. Uh, we talked about what was the one we talked about that I really wanted to back Viceroy. 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 Yeah, uh-huh. that that was the first one that I was really, really sorely tempted to back, and still will we'll probably pick it up when it comes out in the store. But above and below has even topped that. I would really like to pick that one up, and we'll see. We'll see if it happens. It may be my first one. I would be amazed. Yeah. <laughs> the, this episode of Punched and Played is 
how to get Jonathan to back a Kickstarter. That's the title. <laughs> We're actually going to have start a Kickstarter to get me to back a Kickstarter. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I think that sounds that's that's promising, promising. Um, for me, it, I've backed a lot of games, and um, and my backing has evolved over the years. I've backed games that just were solely on just you know, is this game cool? Do I like the theme? But now the big thing for me that I want, like, I've just been burned. And, you know, it's funny because I paid full price for a lot of the games that I backed. And then next, you know, then when they came out, I could have bought them for half off at on Amazon or whatever. And then so I've kind of learned a few lessons. The number one thing that I've learned now is, like, when I back a game, it the first thing that comes to my mind is value. Am I getting something valuable or unique from the Kickstarter, something that no one else is going to get if I kickstart this? Or is am I going to get expansions or something that they give you that that little um for saying, you know, why don't I just wait? So yeah. So you're a stretch goal promo guy. I am a stretch goal promo guy. I'm a Kickstarter only guy. That really chaps a lot of people. There's a lot of discussion online about, you know, oh, you know, I hate that. Like, I missed it, and I missed this. I missed the Kickstarter, and so you're telling me I can't get that. I can't get one card, this one card from that you that only the Kickstarter people got. I understand that, and I that's burned me a couple times because there are some people who are like they just have it's the what it, uh, what euphoria, and you know it's that mega uber thing of euphoria, and you're just like, oh man, I'll never get that game now because I missed the Kickstarter. But you know what? I'm okay with that, and I I don't know. There's just something for me that if I back it, I can be patient now. I've learned a little bit more patience with Kickstarter. If it's a game that I like and it's funded, I'm just gonna probably just hang out, wait till it it you know hits main distribution, unless it is like a little it, unless it's a game salute game where I know that the game salute games they won't hit wide distribution. They'll only be through the game salute, and so. The price isn't going to change. So I've ended up buy, backing a few just those because I, I know, well, I'm going to buy this anyway. Why not just get free shipping? Yeah, the the issue with stretch goals, I don't, I, I don't think I like stretch goals. I feel like I understand why they exist. It seems like every project is expected to have stretch goals now. There mm-hmm. are some publishers who say we're not going to do uh, any more stretch goals. We're going to put out the game that we want, and if we don't get the money for it, so be it. Like, here's our finished product. We're not going to take things out of our game and give you something that's less than what our vision is for it. So I wish that more projects would do that. I understand why they have the stretch goals, but again, I just feel like there's so much of this this game being played through Kickstarter of... Well, we need this much to fund this game, but oh, look at all this cool stuff we've left out. So if we can get enough money, we can put it back in. That's that's the impression I get sometimes. I agree with you. I think that the delineation that I like to make is I don't like it when they hold out parts of the game. Like if you do this, we'll add in this section of the game. You know, we'll add this section back into the game. And it's just like, why don't you just give that to me all in the box? I like when the stretch goals are about like component upgrades. 
you know, hey, we're only able to do wooden cubes, but if I get an, if you get enough money coming into us, we'll be able to do a special kind of meeple. Pepper meeples. That's, yes. That's what that, I was thinking about Scoville. Exactly. Scoville was the same one for me too. Is uh, you know, I liked that one. I almost backed that. I almost backed that in that same thing is that you're just like, wow, these pepper meeples, that's going to make the game cool, more thematic. You know, that's that's the type of stuff that entices me. No, absolutely. I'm, so I'm not like, opposed or against stretch goals just across the board. I just feel like it's just kind of become an expectation to a, too, too large of an extent. So I just don't like playing that game anymore. Like, again, I, I like being able to, okay, I, I backed this. I helped support it. I made it happen. I like being able to possibly get something that's special. But, again, Euphoria, for example, I, I missed that. And I missed being able to back that, but I was able, I tracked down one of the special editions with all the awesome pieces. But yeah, it, it's, it's tough. It's a tough balancing act of, again, going back to that value thing. And so one of the games that I had previously backed is a game called A Study in Emerald, which is based upon a short story by Neil Gaiman of the same title. And I'm a really big fan of Neil Gaiman. So whenever this came out, essentially the premise of A Study in Emerald is that it takes a Sherlock Holmes uh, story, but it sets it in a universe in which the great old ones have already taken over. So essentially, it's taking place in that universe of Sherlock Holmes with Cthulhu. And it, again, it's this whole thing of a the restorationists and you know the loyalists who are loyal to the great old ones who are essentially the ruling powers across the world. So it's got this very unique element. And if you have not read the short story, A Study in Emerald, it's actually free on Neil Gaiman's website. And it's Definitely worth checking out. If you're a Sherlock Holmes fan or a Cthulhu fan, it's it's a very interesting read. So it has some nice little twists and turns in that story. So when I saw that, it was a board game about Sherlock Holmes, Cthulhu, and it was based upon a short story by my favorite author. I was like, done. The thing is, it was it's designed by Martin Wallace. And I have not played any Martin Wallace games in the past. I'm familiar with his games like Steam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, oh boy. We don't want to Steam any of our games. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this is a respected designer. I was like, okay, well, I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, it was a pretty steep cost, though, because it was in British pounds. And so it ended up being pretty expensive trying to get this game. But I was able to uh, get it for my birthday. I was really excited. It came late. Something about that game, I I like the game quite a bit. I think the thing that bothers me about that game the most, and Martin Wallace has been very upfront about it, this was designed as a different game entirely from the from the very beginning. And he was trying to find some other way to make it, I guess, more interesting. So I feel like he was able to bring in aspects of this world, took the ideas of this game, and is able to infuse it into that universe, but I feel like it's missing something. It's got some, like a little bit of a deck building area control elements to it, and some secret roles. So you'll either be a loyalist who's trying to protect the great old ones, or you could be a restorationist who's trying to overthrow the great old ones and make the world the way it used to be. So as you're going through there, there's two different tracks for the loyalist and the restorationist, and the unique thing is at the end of the game, since we don't know whose side everyone's on, whenever the, the conditions, there's several conditions in which the end game can trigger, 
whichever player is in last place, whatever team they're on, that team automatically loses. So if the person in first place was on the same side as the last place person, they lost the game. So part of the game is trying to figure out what side everybody's on. And you can, you can, as the people start taking actions, you'll be able to start figuring out, okay, that looks like you're in favor of the great old ones. Okay, so you're a loyalist. But you can bluff, double bluff, do things to throw people off the track. There's some. There's even a card, one of the last games I played of this, Francisco was playing with me, and he got a permanent effect that allowed him to switch sides immediately. And he used that. So it's kind of got this unique aspect One thing that I've found is that there can be an uneven number of people on each side. So in one of the games I played, I think I was the only person that was a restorationist and everyone else was a loyalist. So I felt very outnumbered with that. So I'm sure there's got to be some way to balance that out, but it's, it's very interesting. But as long as you didn't come in last, they all lost, right? I, yeah, I, I, I don't (laughs) Oh, that's a good point, isn't it? And I don't actually remember how that actually worked out. Mm. So, but again, I felt like there were so many people. I think, I think in those games, they were able to kind of just jump ahead. Once everyone was able to figure out, hey, we're all on the same side, they were able just to kind of rally and really surge ahead. But that's a good point. So if you can actually still just keep up with that last place person, edge yourself out a little bit, I guess you could still end up winning. So. Yeah, one thing that I've noticed out of these games is that a lot of the games from Kickstarter, the other thing I want to look is, so there's value and then there's quality. I definitely want to make sure that there's a there's a quality thing. I've got a couple games that the person that was designing it really loved the idea, and he really talked it up. But in the execution, the game was not as good. You know, it was not quite there, was not quite developed enough, that uh, there was not enough playtesting, so I mean the game the game struggled for me a little bit. I've had both I've had it on both sides, but I got to make sure reviews are so important for me now. Is that even though if I love the theme, I love the artwork, you know, I got to make sure I love the game, and that's the reason why like I never I didn't back Ghostbusters mm-hmm. because early me would have probably jumped right on that and said, oh I love this this is this is going to be good. But now I, you need to show me the gameplay. Right. You know, give me the rule book. Show me the gameplay. I need to make sure that this thing is going to be a, not only a game that looks good, but a game that I'll get to the table. Right. And don't get me wrong. I think that a study in Emerald is still a good game. I like it a lot. I just, I guess there was part of, I set the expectations so high for it that I don't think it could possibly have met what I was expecting from a Sherlock Holmes meets Cthulhu sort of board game. It, it, it definitely captures aspects of it, but, yeah, I, I it's one of those games I, I, I always want to play again, but every time I play it, I feel like there's just something that I'm missing, and I can't quite put my finger on it. But, again, hey, at least the game got delivered. Trying to find that silver lining again. That's so. right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Keep you coming back. Yeah. So, again, I think one of the things that really draws me in is either a really cool theme with it but again if the gameplay is not there to back it up and i think that's been a big problem that i've ran into with kickstarter i really like storytelling games and i actually backed there was one i backed and i was really excited about and i think i it's it's the, the designer of it said it's more like a toolkit that you can kind of the games 
there, but you can kind of make it what you want. And it was, uh, this is a different game than what you're thinking of, okay? It is. It's uh, Machine of Death, okay? And it's a storytelling game where you are playing an, an assassin, and it takes place in a world in which a machine has been invented in which, with a single drop of blood, it will tell you how you're going to die, Okay? But it, the machine of death has a very dark sense of humor. So it might say that you're going to die of old age, but it could mean that you're going to get beat to death by an old man with a cane. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the idea here is that you're given a target, and you know how he's, going to, how he's supposed to die, and then you're given these different resources, and you have to try to figure out how you're going to try to get, uh, knock him off. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually kind of fun. It's very light. It's silly. But I, I like that. But while I was backing that, there was another game that popped up. You know, sometimes with these Kickstarters, they'll promote other people's games that they have catch, caught their eye. And so another game that they were they plugged along with De- uh, Machine of Death was Story War. Have you heard of Story War? I have not. <sighs> this game, I this is probably the one that I regret backing the most. I was so excited. It's essentially a giant game of, I do this. Uh-uh. No, my person does this. It stops it. Oh, yeah? Well, my person does this. Oh, okay. Well, my person goes into this. Oh, no, you missed completely. It's just a bickering match. The idea is that you have these mythical creatures, okay? And you're going to kind of battle them out in these different scenarios using cards to tell stories about these big battles between these different creatures and how it goes. And it t- turns into a giant bickering match. You sound like my kids. <laughs> <sighs> I have not had a good experience with it. I I was so excited about the idea, but the execution is just not there. Not there. And so I kind of went all in with that. I got lots of the extra cards, and they delivered everything, but it's one of those games I don't think I'm going to play this because I've not had a good experience with it. Maybe i got to find the right people, but don't play that with kids because it will absolutely turn into that. And I'm not convinced that it will be any better with adults. The videos they posted look, oh, look how fun it is. But no, it was it was not good. Liars! <laughs> yeah, so A Machine of Death, it's not an amazing game, but it's still, for what it is, I think it's still a better game than what Story Ward is. Mm-hmm. So at least I find it a little bit more interesting, a little bit more creativity being used with that. So, mm-hmm. so let me ask you one more question, Jonathan. Yes. What would it take for you to actually back a game on Kickstarter? Well, I don't know. I was very, very tempted for Above and Below. And were it not the fact that I uh, ordered a bunch of tickets for conventions and stuff, I probably would have backed that one. But just the timing didn't work out very well for me there. All right. Well, the stars have got to align one of these days. So there have been three games that you're inter- you've been interested in backing, is that right? Uh, so you had Viceroy, Above and Below, Valeria. You yeah, those inter- three. Those three have been the three that I've been the most interested in. You know, there's been various others. I mean, I looked at you know Kingdom Death Monster with all the crazy miniatures. I've looked at I've looked at a lot of Kickstarter in in my time. I just haven't pulled that trigger yet. Uh, Ar- let's see, was Arcade Quest on that one? Arcadia Quest. Yeah, it was on it was on Kickstarter. Sorry, that was another one I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. I have not actually played any of the cool mini or not games. I haven't played any of them. I haven't either. Uh, I've wanted to. Dungeon 
What's the dungeon one? Super Dungeon Explorer. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot about that one. Okay, so I have played one. Yeah, and they've sp- that that company's actually spun off from Cool Mini or not, but they started with them. So, tying in with this idea of Kickstarter, uh, one of the games that we mentioned in previous podcasts that we've been playtesting is Vault Wars. And Vault Wars is currently running on Kickstarter. And it, again, will probably be within its final days on Kickstarter by the time that this podcast airs. But we're going to get John Gilmore to join us, and we will start kind of talking to him about his experiences doing Kickstarter and kind of his development of board games in general. All right, so joining us now is John Gilmore, the co-designer of Dead of Winter and the designer of Vault Wars, which is currently running on Kickstarter right now. How are you doing tonight, John? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Just fine. So thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your very busy schedule. I know you've been doing a lot of playtesting and making tweaks and all that. So, And you've been, so you were at a prototype night, is that right? Yeah, I have a, a group of local designers, guys from you know, from real local to about an hour, an hour and a half away, and we meet up every other Thursday night and uh, you know play each other's prototypes. So that was that was tonight was trying some stuff out. It must be pretty valuable to be able to get there, kind of get feedback and make some tweaks and all that. Oh, oh yeah, they get to see the rough versions of everything I do, so they put it through the ringer. I can before. only imagine. Yeah, absolutely. We were all involved in the playtest for Vault Wars, and we also oh, well, thank did you guys very much. Absolutely, and we also playtested Dead of Winter as well. So we've kind of we're definitely familiar with your games. Good, good, thank you. I was kind of curious. I know since you're that that game by the time this podcast goes up, I think the Kickstarter for Vault Wars will only have a couple days left. So through the playtesting process, you were having to make, you're making a lot of tweaks at getting the Mm -hmm. feedback. I'm kind of curious, what is it like being on the other side of the playtesting field as a designer, where you're taking the feedback and making tweaks? Oh, I love it. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I really pushed to do the big playtest like this. Um, It was important with Dead of Winter to me to get the community involved and, you know, I opened it up to Reddit and uh, BGG, and we got a lot of people. And then with Vault Wars, I did the same thing. So, you know, I think it's invaluable. And I don't think enough games do wide playtesting like that right now, especially, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to talk bad about anybody, but I mean, Kickstarter games tend to have. Some some of them seem to be rushed sometimes. Absolutely. And we were talking a little bit about that before we got you on the show as well. So. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I, and I think, you know, to me, I've been working on Vault Wars. I worked on it almost two years before I brought it to Floodgate. You know, we worked together on it for about six or eight months, and then we put it through the play te- the widespread playtesting. But, you know, I'd probably playtested it close to 100 times before that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, you know, whenever I talk to somebody who wants to, you know, design games or know, you know, my biggest advice, that's always it. Just, you know, you're never done playtesting. And that's the thing is like, I mean, as we uh, were going through the playtesting of Vault Wars, I know there were a lot of tweaks in terms of point values, but also how different cards work. Is it ever hard for you to make a change based upon feedback that you really liked yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, luckily, I got most of the painful tra- uh, changes out of the way before we went to mass playtesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, cutting certain things out and, you know, making refinements with uh, Ben. You know, he's really good about that. He's got a good mind for production value. 
So, I mean, there were things we cut to try to get the cost down to where it is. I mean, I think he hit a really good, you know, value at 20 bucks for the Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, it's, an, yeah. it's an amazing price point. Yeah, and, I mean, he got really good international shipping prices. So, um, you know, there were there were tweaks and cuts we had to make for that. But, I mean, I've, I've kind of gotten over the stage where it's tough for me to accept a change being made. I mean, it's just something you have to learn that, hey, there's things about a game that you're going to love, but you, you either have to not become attached to them or, you know, just accept the fact that it's going to be painful when you when you cut them loose. Absolutely. Now, I know that since you're working with Ben, so whenever you designed Vault Wars, did you decide that the theme was going to take place within the universe of Epic Resort, or did you start from a different place entirely? So it started off as just a generic modern setting. So, I mean, it was essentially just storage wars. You know, with, That's awesome. I threw, some, I threw some funny items in there. And then during playtesting, uh, somebody suggested that uh, I should try it with a fantasy theme just to see how it felt. So, you know, I went back. I, threw, I just kind of pasted on a really generic fantasy theme. And it really started to resonate with people a lot more. Um, so I had probably been playtesting it with a fantasy theme for three or four months before I met Ben at mm-hmm. Grand Con. And, uh, I was a big fan at Epic Resort. You know, I backed the Kickstarter. I'd gotten to, uh, play, play it at Grand Con. So when I pitched it to him, I pitched it to him as being set in that universe. And it wasn't my intention to design it, but it just, it was a really good natural fit. That's awesome. I, again, I think it's it's kind of interesting to kind of see how the the game starts off in terms of theme and mechanics and how it kind of evolves from there. Uh, Jonathan, I think you had some questions you were wanting to ask as well, right? Yeah, John, I just want to take you back. I'm always interested when I talk to new people, you know, how they got into the hobby, how they got into modern board gaming, you know, kind of what your evolution uh, in gaming was. Oh, um, that's good. I, you know, I grew up playing a lot of games like a lot of us did, uh, you know, I, Crossbows and Catapults. Uh, That's classic. Uh, Fire, Fireball Island. Yes. You know, all those great Crossfire. Yeah, so I played a lot of those growing up. And uh, I played Magic the Gathering in high school and Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and then when I graduated high school, there weren't a lot of gamers around where I was at. So I kind of got out of it for a few years, got more into, uh, you know, video gaming and PC, you know, PC gaming. Um. But then, you know, my wife and I, we were married for a few years uh, and, you know, we had had our first couple kids. So I wanted to, uh, you know, get back into the hobby because we would, you know, go to spend the day with our parents or, you know, spend time with our family. And they would always play, you know, the traditional board games like Scrabble or, you know, uh, hand and foot, you know, card games, stuff like that. Um, So I wanted to try to explore the hobby a little bit more and try to find games because I knew there were games that were better. You know, not that those games are bad because if you enjoy it, then it's fine. Um, but, you know, things that I knew I would enjoy more. So, you know, I started exploring it. Uh, we both, you know, she really enjoyed when uh, the the intro game for her family and uh, that I showed her was Bonanza. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, she really she really enjoyed that. Then we got into 
you know, Carcassonne and a lot of the other stuff probably about seven years ago, maybe. And then it just you know, took off from there. She threw a birthday party for me and we had probably 10 of my friends over and we played board games all day. And then we we're like, well, we should do this every month. That's awesome. So then I think for, I don't remember what, uh, how long it's been, but this Saturday is our monthly uh, game day. And I think we've been doing it for four years now, every single month. Wow. That's awesome. That's great. And, and we have a really great group, you know, monthly attendance is like between 20 to 50 people. Oh, wow. Ooh. Yeah. We're, we're, we're small scale compared to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird. Cause like I'm, I live in this really small town in Ohio and there, the nearest game store, like the one I went to tonight is about 45 minutes away. So there's not like a huge gaming community here, but over the you know, last few years, we've really built it up where, you know, our group on Facebook has like 200 people in it of people that have come to our game days and, you know, every month we get this great attendance. So, I mean, it's, it's really about building up that sense of community. We, you know, we took a big meal for everybody and then we just asked that people to come, you know, bring snacks or something to share. And then, you know, we open up our house and set up a bunch of tables and everybody has a good time. That's awesome. That's great. Well, my, my next question for you, John, was how did that, you know, love of gaming transition you into designing board games? Um, you know, I think it happens with a lot of us where, you know, as we play board games, we kind of talk about the things that we enjoy in them or, you know, how certain interactions in the game appeal to us. And then, you know, it kind of grows from there. You know, we talked about, well, what if this was different? And, you know, for me, you know, I started tinkering. I did a little bit of home, you know, homebrew, uh, hero scape stuff, made some characters, played around with that, you know, made some stuff for last night on earth. And yeah, I'm, I've always been, I've always enjoyed being creative, whether or not I'm, I'm good at different artistic <laughs> things. I always enjoyed the, the process of creating things. And I really like troubleshooting problems. So design's kind of a natural fit for me because that's, you know, you create something and then you try to figure out what's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. So it, it fits well into that. Absolutely. It makes a nice little hobby to do on the outside as well. So, <laughs> hey John, question for you: when you when you put out your game, what's what's the best compliment you've ever got from uh, one of your games? Well, uh, the one that have, you know, affected me the most it wasn't even really a compliment, but um, you know, probably I was playing. We were playing Dead of Winter. My wife and I were traveling up to up to New York to pick up my kids from my mom's house because uh, they went there to visit and we i had set up some random bgg meetings with people and i just posted hey this is the route i'm taking if you want i'll stop play you know stop at a game store play that play a game of it with you on our way through and uh we we're playing and a crossroad card uh came up and my wife started to cry like oh wow that like i felt really bad but also the fact that you know, the game caused her that emotion. You know, it was a really big thing for me. Absolutely. And you've know, seen other people talk about, you know, how how it makes them feel, you know, either emotionally drained or, you know, really intense. And I, you know, I love when people post session reports. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I, I love reading that. And I, you know, I encourage people on, you know, Reddit or BGG to just, you know, even if they don't want to post it publicly, send me a message and tell me about, 
you know, when you played and, you know, the fun things that happened because that's why that's why I do it. That's awesome. And when we played my very first game of Dead of Winter when we were playtesting it, I really enjoyed trying to take that experience as if I was actually there. And I encourage people who play Dead of Winter for their first time to really try to think about when you encounter those crossroads cards, put yourself in that perspective and try to figure out what you would actually do. Because it's so easy sometimes to think about, oh, well, I'll do this because it'll be better in terms of a gameplay perspective. It'll help us, you know, progress this way. But even though those really tough moral decisions, I think the first card I crossroads card I encountered was when I encountered the horse and I could either <laughs> uh, shoot it or keep it alive. And uh, I I could not shoot the horse. And everyone was like, why did you not just take the food for the horse? And I'm like, nope, nope. So I kept that horse, and I was got at the early part of the game, and I don't regret it at all. So that was a really great experience for me, is just to kind of take it from that perspective. Yeah. You know, that's that's really when, uh, during the playtesting phase, I knew we had something special was when I, you know, because I'm a big fan of when I playtest to not play it myself, but to let other people play it and just sit back and watch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would watch people make, decisions that were completely not based on mechanics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who aren't into role-playing games, you know, like, like my wife's a good example. She doesn't care for role-playing games. You know, she'll admit like, you know, if I try to get her to play fiasco, <laughs> if she says she doesn't have a really good imagination and she's not good at, you know, playing a character, but then, you know, when, uh, she'd sit down and play dead of winter. You know, she would make these decisions. Like there, there was a, uh, you know, one time when we got food from a questionable source, mm-hmm. um, and she didn't agree with, and, you know, she voted against the rest of the group. And like, when we put the, the, the cubes into the supply, like we had to set them off separate and she wouldn't touch those cubes. <laughs> and like, you know, like if she went at the end of the turn, we weren't allowed to eat those cubes. That's awesome. Or, so watching, you know, watching her not necessarily role play, but get into a character like that, and other people do the same thing. I mean, that—that's when I knew that, you know, we had we had something good. Yeah, and I'm I'm just so thankful that a game like this actually exists with those crossroads cards because that's just that's, that's an awesome mechanic, and really, I don't think without that, the game w- wouldn't be nearly as special as it is. You know, there were still lots of great moments without them, but they absolutely. Uh, you know, add add such a great layer to it. Absolutely. But again, because the whole package, I mean, it has so many great pieces, different components that come together. It 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 is definitely one of our favorite games. It's probably one of the games we've actually gotten to the table more than probably any other game because of the playtesting. But even though we went through the playtesting process, when we got our copies, we got it out and we were very excited to play it again. And we've actually got to play it quite a few times. So, well, thank you. And it's one of those games where even when I'm not a trader, I just, I find myself, you know, doing things maybe, maybe a little bit shifty, you know, I'll, I'll stockpile guns and, and still ask my neighbors for guns, you know, and I just, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm playing how I would play. I would be very, uh, I guess, very careful with my resources. I wouldn't be freely sharing with everybody. And it just kind of puts me in a different mode from, from most every other game that I play. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the very first time we played it with plaid hat was after Isaac and I had been working on it for probably close to two years. Um, and so we brought it to Gen Con. We went back to the hotel one night and played it with them. 
uh, or let them play. And then, you know, we watched them and two of the people that were playing were hoarding food and neither <laughs> of them had the, the food hoarding secret objectives. Yep. Oh, so, wow. and, and, I, and I love that, you know, there's a lot of debate on BGG and a lot of talk and I usually don't chime in on it because, you know, if you, if you want to play the way that you play, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And if you want to play a different way, that's fine. Cause you really, you can, you can set your own path in the game. And, you know, I like to play, I, I'll go, I'll go either way. You know, I can be against the team or for the team, but a, a lot of it is, you know, I'll play depending on my situation. You know, is, is everybody else working with me? Is, you know, is everybody else against me? You know, how, do, how do my characters feel? So I think that's, that's a lot of fun giving users that, uh, that ability. Interesting. Actually, when we talk about the secret win conditions or the secret conditions, that's like one of my favorite parts of the game. What was the genesis of that? Did you was that like something that you added in at the end, or where did that come about in your design process? Well, uh, in the very very first iteration of the game, um, I actually had public betrayals, uh-huh. so every character had printed on there because uh, you just played one survivor at first, mm-hmm. but you. You had your dice were actions, so it, and it was real similar the way the dice worked, but you just had one survivor, and they were kind of like your health. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the corner of the card was printed how you could betray the group and win. <laughs> oh, wow. So it was public for everybody, so everybody knew, okay, well, you're the junkie, so we have to constantly be suspicious. Oh, well, he went to the hospital, mm. and he's not playing those cards that he found, so what did he find? Mm-hmm. So I mean, it had a different feel to it, and it's a mechanic that I really like, and I'd like to revisit at some point. And I, I think it works better as a secret objective in this game. But it was a lot of fun, you know, watching how people would treat each other, knowing the other people's flaws. That's fascinating. Um, the thing with with us is that so many times we end up not having a betrayer, but we're always so paranoid. Sometimes we work ourselves up because, again, if someone does the slightest thing that seems a little bit out of the ordinary, we'll convince ourselves that this person's a traitor. And I think that's just a great <laughs> dynamic within that game. Yeah, and I love how uh, new groups, when they play it, will you know not be paranoid up until the fact up until they get a traitor, <laughs> and then it just amps it up, you know, through the roof. Absolutely. Well, my next question for you was, how did this collaboration with Isaac Mega come about? I mean, how did you guys hook up on this and decide to work on this together? Well, um, it yeah, I a lot of it's dumb luck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, you know the monthly game day that my wife and I host, um, one of my friends was like, "Well, I'm gonna uh, do you mind if I invite this group of guys that I used to play Raw Deal with that he used to play Raw Deal with." <laughs> Um, so we have a bunch of friends or he had a bunch of friends that lived about an hour away. Um, and they used to do the raw deal tournaments all the time and they knew each other really well through there and he knew that they were into board games. So he invited them. Uh, so, you know, my friends, uh, Travis, Jim, or his friends, Travis, Jim and Lucas would start to come and they were like, well, do you mind if we bring our friend Isaac? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And, uh, you know, he, he came and, you know, we started to become, we all, you know, were becoming friends just through interactions through game day. And then, you know, I'd been working on this game for you know, maybe six months or so. And I really didn't have a lot of plans to do anything with it. 
I was probably going to release it as a print and play, just like I did Pocket Dungeon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just because I, you know, I I enjoyed creating it for creating its sake. I was, you know, I wanted to make the zombie game that I felt like wasn't out there yet and wasn't doing the things that I wanted it to. So, you know, I I would bring it to game day and just you know have people play test it because. Yeah, my my other goal was to make a game that my friends would enjoy, and we would play. So you know, I'd play test it with them and get their feedback. And yeah, Isaac sat down to play at one time, and um, at the end of the play test, you know, he, uh, he was like, "Would you consider co-designing this with me? If not, I'm probably just going to steal your ideas." <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, "Co-designing it sounds fantastic." <laughs> That's great. That sounds like something Isaac would actually say. So, <laughs> oh, it's totally. Yeah, that's that's the same way he tells the story too. That's great. <laughs> you know, he took the game, reworked a bunch of stuff, came back the next month uh, to the game day. We played it again, and then just started working together. You know, he asked me what I thought of his direction and you know the changes that he made from what I had, and mm-hmm. you know from there, you know we just collaborated. Yeah, and I know whenever they were uh, they were doing the pre-orders for Dead of Winter, they had the the going poll of what type of theme they would like for the next Crossroads game. I think it was Lost in Space that ended up coming in first place for the next. Is that something that you guys have been playing around with at this point, or is there another Crossroads game in the pipeline? Well, um, because Isaac is full time with Plaid Hat, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not. I work. You know, I work in a factory, so I already have a 40-hour-plus-a-week job. Oh, sure, yeah. So our schedules are really different, and you know, he can devote more time to developing it, and you know, I, and we can't really share the workload evenly. Sure. Obviously. So he's actually working. We decided to kind of split off on the next two games. So he's working on the Lost in Space game, or the, the science fiction game, uh, by himself. And then I'm working on the one after that. Oh, that's so great. That, because I have more time to do it. So, you know, I have a longer period of time to get it done. That's fantastic. Uh, and I'm also working on a Dead of Winter expansion. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I heard that it was in the pipeline. I have been uh, looking for more details about that. So we're definitely <laughs> excited about that. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't said too much, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. I, I actually started working on the expansion like back in July. Because by that point, I had a production copy of it that I was playing. Yeah. So, you know, my, I had the finished product, so my mind was instantly turning to what do I do next with it? You know, I started throwing ideas together, and then I've been playtesting it for probably four or five months now. And expansions, expansions are fun to design because you already have, you know, most of the working pieces there. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, adding new things in and seeing how they interact. And, um, you know, I like to make, I like expansions that are modular, so there will be a lot of little things that you can add in as you want with it. Well, that's exciting. That's good. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to that. So, <laughs> and uh, John, also, uh, my wallet wants to know: uh, Have you shared what the the theme of the third game is going to be? Uh, I'm pretty sure we have. I think I've talked about it before. Um, I'm working on the uh, Deep Underground game. Oh, it's kind of the code name for it. So, um, the concept from the start has kind of been the movie The Descent. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Mixed with Pitch Black. Oh, wow. All right. Set in like a, a far, far post-apocalyptic world where everybody lives underground in silos. Very cool. That'll be cool. That'll sound cool. Well, I'm definitely yeah, looking... I'm, I'm really excited. 
Absolutely. I'm, I think I'm definitely excited for any Crossroads game uh, that's coming out. Um, I think it's up there with legacy games at this point. I really like this idea of having kind of that... That, uh, yeah, and, and, that and I'm across. really, I'm really interested in throwing some legacy components into a crosser game just to see how that would work too, because I think that could be a lot of fun. That could be a lot of fun. That would be fun. That would be exciting. And so. you know, I think, I think I'm really happy with the decision. You know, early on that you know we made with Plaid Hat that you know the sci-fi game or the deep underground game or any any future game, they're not just going to be cookie cutter. I mean, we could just take Dead of Winter and retheme it pretty easily oh, sure. and crank out a game a year. But we'd much rather go back to the ground on each game and just figure out how do we do new and exciting things and then add the crosser cards and the secret objectives to them and get those same feelings but in a different type of game. Absolutely. And I, I think a lot of gamers are going to definitely appreciate that as, as opposed to, okay, I'm, I've already bought this game with a different coat of paint on it. So I, I, I know for me, I'm definitely very appreciative that you and Plaid Hat are taking that approach. Any other uh, upcoming projects you're working on right now? Oh, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm actively working on, so let's see, there's Dead of Winter expansion, there's the Underground game. Vault Wars is mostly wrapped up. I'm working with uh, Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback, uh, the guys who did Fleet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're working on a game that right now we're calling Wasteland Truckers, which is a post-apocalyptic pick-up-and-deliver game with combat. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Wow. So, um, and that's that's signed. I can't say much more than that. No, but I understand. People start yeah. seeing news about that soon. Um, I've got... Maybe three other projects that are signed as well that I'm working on that are all really exciting. You are a busy guy, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I don't sleep. That's the trick. That's good. <laughs> well, we're keeping you up late for, for this podcast, too, so we're not helping oh, yeah. matters I, any. I normally, I normally don't go to bed until like one or two most nights. So Oh, goodness. There's just no other way to get all done. I can only imagine. Absolutely. In terms of the Kickstarter campaign with with Vault Wars, have you been keeping up with that much? Is this this is your first game that's been on Kickstarter? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I back a lot of Kickstarter games, and I, I love Kickstarter as a platform. And I think it's it's got a, it's really good and it does a lot of good things. But you know, having a game on it is just it's it's a different experience. My keyboard used to have an F5 key. I think I've worn it down. To <laughs> <laughs> There's a hole where the F5 key was. <laughs> yeah, it's like drilled into the table. <laughs> well, at least you had the peace of mind of knowing the game is at least funded. So, Yeah, yeah, we funded in 11 hours, which was fantastic. I mean, the response was great right out of the gate. Yeah. Have you seen any of the production prototypes of the metal coins that were being offered for it? I have not seen the production ones. I've only seen the render. I mean, I've seen them over video. You know, Ben's shown me some of the, the the early versions of them. They look very so, sharp, so <laughs> they look very nice. They, you know, people were kind of gawking at the the price upgrade for them, but I know, yeah. I know Ben's got a couple more stretch goals that'll upgrade the deluxe edition to make it more rewarding, and the coins are bigger than you would think. I can only imagine. I mean, just based on the renders, they look pretty chunky. Yeah. They're nice. It's worth it. It's a lot of metal. Oh, that's great. 
So I'm kind of curious. We were we were talking about some of the current Kickstarter games, but also some ones that we've backed in the past. Are there any Kickstarter games in particular that you are glad that you got on board with? Man, I think I think I just backed like my my 80th game the other day. Wow! Wow! Yeah, you, um, yeah. I think you beat us combined. So, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is a little bit embarrassing when I talk about it. When I realize how many I've backed, but um, man, let me see. Let me look at my backer history real quick. That's I'm fun. really excited for uh, Fire Team Zero, uh-huh. mm-hmm. which is uh, you know minis with tons of chunky plastic. Um, oh, tumbling dice that just went up on Kickstarter the other day. That's been a grail game for me since the beginning, and you know, being able to pick it up is going to be fantastic. I'm already regretting asking you this because I'm like, uh-oh, I'm going to have to go and check all these projects out now. <laughs> you know, Conan was super exciting. So you, so you backed Conan? I did. Okay. I did. I wasn't going to, and then I did. And then because of that, I backed Blood Rage, which I didn't want to back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Conan looks massive. Oh, it does. They, they just kept unlocking so many things. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tiny Epic Galaxies, man. I'm really excited for that. I played the uh, print-and-play version of it. It's uh, Scott Alms is one of my favorite designers, and that game is just really, really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I, I was able to back that one. So I think I'll, there was a, quite a few people that actually jumped on board with that. And I think that little, the, the smaller package game really kind of helped that because, I mean, it was a really great par- price point, and it looks like it's a really solid game in the, for what you get. One of the game I played tonight at the prototype, there my game that I brought to the prototype is a small box 4x game. Ooh, like I'm ooh. trying to do, I'm trying to do Eclipse in a small box. Wow, with tech trees and lots of cool mechanics. So I'm really excited. That sounds promising. I like that. I'm saving it, up right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna try to do. I want to do small box. I want to try to hit under thirty bucks. Wow! Wow! That's, that's my goal for it, because I think that could be really exciting to get a lot of playability in a, in a 4X game that plays in an hour to an hour and a half, but still gives you that really exciting, uh, like each each faction has three different branches to the tech tree, so there's lots of different variations when you research technology, you know, you can work your way down the tech trees. I, I have a pretty neat system, I think, that uh, it's kind of a mix of... Uh, Sail to India. Have you guys played that? I have not. No, I've heard a lot of good things about it. So it does a really cool thing where your cubes that you have are everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you want to, if you want to put a boat out, you spend one of your cubes. If you want to track a, a good that you're boat shipping, you spend a cube. If you want to track your score, you move one of your cubes over to the score track. If you want to track your money, you have to take a cube out of your supply and put it on the money track. So. And if the money money track only goes up to five, so if you have six dollars, you have to use two of your cubes that are also your everything else to just track your money or your victory points. So it's got this really cool concept where you have a very limited supply of things that do everything. So it's it's like a mix of that and using dice for everything. So kind of like quantum, mm-hmm. where you know your dice are a lot of different things. So my goal, my my kind of my design concept is I want each player to have like twenty eight millimeter dice, like really small dice that they use for everything. Oh, that'll be neat. 
Can I be your number one backer? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, eventually I'll be looking for playtesters, so. Okay. You guys are already on my list. Okay. Clint has already signed up in his mind. I have already signed up. You can (laughs) just put it on your list. You've been trying yeah, to get us to play Eclipse. I've been. A, I'm a huge Eclipse fan. I'm not. I'm. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> oh, I am too. I mean, it does. It does a lot of the things that Twilight Imperium does in a smaller package. It doesn't do everything, but. Yeah, I just. I kind of like. I said, I like that tight. You know, it's a. It's a. It's a four X game, but it's really quite tight, and uh, I like those variable player power. So i like I said, I'm. I'm sold. <laughs> so um, yeah, the uh, the the goal is eight different. Eight completely different factions right now, each with their own completely different three branch tech trees. I'm so in. And <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the theme is going to be post apocalyptic, so it'll be a post apocalyptic four X, which there isn't really anything that does that right now. That's cool. So, well, so it was a lot of fun playing it for the first time. Then we only played like one round of it because there was some really broken stuff. But yeah, yeah. So it's early, but it, it, that's that's one I'm working on too. All right. Well, uh, Clint's already saving up for you, so. <laughs> so I think I told you a little bit about kind of how we end our show. Usually, we do what's called the punch list, where one of us gives everyone else a random categorization or category of uh, game that we have to think about. What is our favorite in that category? It's not necessarily our the best game, but one that we believe is a punch worthy. So are you okay. up for uh, trying this out being put on the spot? Absolutely. All right. So I believe Clint is providing our category for today. Yes, I am. And I, <clears throat> I had some time to think about this and I had a question that came to my thing. I, John, you know, I've seen that you've put out a bunch of great games, but my question, my punch question would be if you could put your name on any game that has ever been designed, what would it be? Okay, now put your name on it and what? As in, you designed this game. All right? So you would get credit for designing any game. And it cannot be your own, John. No cheating. <laughs> All right? So I want you to think about it. So um, Yeah, you, you get to go first. Uh, <laughs> this I is get, the hardest I one we've done. <laughs> yes, I know. So this is this is tough. Like I said, now here's here are a couple caveats. Let me point this out because unfortunately, I my job is to think, so my brain just wanders. And so <laughs> let me do the number one thing is is that you get no monetary value Ooh. out of this. It is it is you want you are getting credit for the game. All right, and then the other caveat is is John, you can't pick one of your own games. <laughs> so. All right, what would you choose, Clint? So I thought about this, and uh, there were there were a couple that came that there were there were a tie between two of them, and the one that I would do so I don't so I don't steal anybody else's is I think I would want the credit for Robinson Crusoe, is the game that I would I would want my name on. Stealing Ignatius Thunder. Yes, All right. I know. <laughs> I I, you know when if for me it was it's when a mechan it's when mechanics meet theme. And it just it just blends perfectly, and I think that always when I that game finally came when that game came out or when I saw it, I was like, that is the game that I have always wanted. And it may not be the most popular game; not everybody will know that game, but I feel like I could that that's a game that I could get out in in ten years, in twenty years, and it will still be one of those games. It's just like this is this is this is an evergreen type type of game, so. 
Okay. Every, everybody should know it. It's fantastic. It, it, yeah, and I, I think it, you know, and incidentally, I think that that one of the things was like Dead of Winter has that same kind of feel of the the mechanics. There's a game. There's a good game there, but it just it is there is a theme. It, I think that's what make those makes those games special, um, and that was kind of what I what I would want my name on is that hey that Clint kid he just I felt like I was playing or I felt like I was on that island. So that would be my yeah. game. That's interesting. I don't. This is a really hard one because I had a whole week to think about it. That's the reason why because <laughs> I've been I've been plotting it. So, well, I've got mine. Um, okay. Mine may make me reviled by some people, but I would probably say Magic: The Gathering. Uh, it's not a game I play anymore, but I played two different separate times: uh, high high <laughs> school and then after in college. I started up again. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a game that really opened up to me, you know, some of the possibilities of gaming. Kind of got me out of comic books. I unfortunately my comic book store sold me my first pack of Magic, and then that was probably <laughs> the last time I picked up a subscription from them. <laughs> but uh, it's you know I know it's re- sometimes reviled amongst people on BGG because of you know the the chasing the money. Um, the packs and everything, and and I understand that that excitement of opening up a pack and getting a rare that you want, but I, I do enjoy the game. I haven't played it in years. I would you know I wouldn't mind pl- picking up and playing just some you know cube or something like that. It's an idea I've been tossing around in the back of my head, but it's just a game that I think you know Richard Garfield came up with. Clever idea. You've got your five types of magic. They each have their own specialties. You know you're dueling head to head. You can you can experiment. You can play around. I mean, think about all the deck building games that have, you know, games that you've, that have come since then, you know, from Netrunner's popularity to all the LCGs we have. Yeah, you know, I I think, and again, you know, it's not a common opinion, but for me, you know, I felt Magic the Gathering was one of the first games that I felt really immersed in when I played it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I felt, because, I mean, I started back, in revised i think playing it so like revised and dark and you know there was a lot more theme to it than there is now yeah they've kind of stripped some of it out i mean even though the art's still gorgeous but you know, you've i i felt like a wizard doing wizard things when i would play it you know and it, it all felt very thematic to me and there's not a lot of card games even still that have kind of replicated that feeling for me um, so I mean I totally agree. I mean that's a good pick. Yeah, that's a strong one. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. What it is? What what is it about? Is it is it the immersion for you, Jonathan? That what what is it you want to have your name associated with magic? Probably probably the immersion. But I, I just like that. You know, there's so much variety. There's so many different ways. I mean, you can you can. I mean, I back in the day I built decks that were creatureless, basically. You know, just trying to uh, eliminate my opponent in, in other ways. And there's just such a variety and so much creativity that goes into that deck building mm-hmm. um, aspect of it. The, the, pre, the pre-net deck days were the heyday of magic, in my opinion. You know, back when you had to be innovative and you, know, you couldn't copy other people's deck ideas, you had to come up with your own all the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't think any game has stayed bigger longer than magic it is one of those games that's still huge today and i yeah i think it you're right i think every that's like that's a pinnacle game that's a good one for for mine i'm gonna go with 
Mice and Mystics. Ooh. I'm going to steal Jerry Hawthorne's game. <laughs> yes, yes. I just really appreciate what he was going for in that game, where you're tying in a very approachable kind of dungeon crawl that has a lot of charm to it and has a really interesting narrative that plays out as you're progressing through the game. Um, a narrative is something that I'm very interested in in regard to games and while I know there are other games out there that maybe do the dungeon crawl better than Mice and Mystics, I don't think any game captures that sense of wonder and the narrative exploration that as you're progressing through that game. So I, I really have a lot of admiration for what Jerry was able to accomplish with that game by, by tying together a very approachable game that I could see myself playing this game with my son whenever he's old enough to be able to play it. Um, to introduce him to that, but also be able to kind of explore that story as he's going through it. So I'm that that's probably the one that I would want my name associated with because I just love that idea of being able to tie in narrative with gameplay. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a great. I think that's a great one. It's interesting though that of all the games that we've come up with so far is that none of them are would it be are, are probably our favorite game. I know Robinson Crusoe. It's still. It's in my top ten for sure. It's still climbing. I haven't. It hasn't quite settled. It's still got to knock off Eclipse. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I wonder about that. So, John, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. You've had some time okay. to think. What, what, what game <laughs> would you, would you want your name on? You know, I think I would probably have to pick Cosmic Encounter. Ooh, Ooh. interesting. Just because of how you know how influential it was to me and and I know to other people. I mean it's it's one of only two games that I, I rate a ten and I think that it's as near to perfect as any game can come. Um, and even though it's highly dependent on group, yeah, I, I don't think you can ever count that against any game. So, you know, what they did what, thirty years ago and this is still going now and new people are still discovering it i mean that's that's an amazing hallmark to make that you know have a game that people are going to talk about that long from now and have that much effect on people i mean you can see the you know the the ripples of effect that that's had on other games over the last 30 years i mean it's not it's certainly not the first game that did negotiation but it introduced negotiation to a lot of people. So, you know, people playing that and learn about it and, you know, learn about the other games. I think that it's just so, so influential. That, that has to be my pick. That's a good. And what's your, what's the other game you rate a 10? Uh, Nations. Nations. Ooh. I haven't oh. had to play Nations. Oh, no. Clint, oh. I thought we were going to play Nations sometime. Yes. Okay. So, wait, we got to this, John. So, Nations, you're saying it's better than Through the Ages. Uh, I I do not feel that I am qualified to make that statement. Okay, <laughs> okay good. That's fair enough. I, interesting. I have only played one and a half games of Through the Ages. Interesting fact is is my my second game that would be on my list would be Through the Ages because again I I feel like it that is as close to a perfect game as you can get. So. I mean, my, my friends, uh, Jeremiah and Eric, I think Jeremiah last year lost 200 plays of Through the Ages. Wow. 
Jeez Louise. It, it is. It's it's an amazing game. The only problem is is it's that the barrier of it to entry can be so I mean that thing will melt your brain. And so that's the reason why <laughs> you John, this may be the day you can write it down. I have I have hovered my finger for like the last year on nations. That may uh, that may be that may have to Uh-oh. be a buy. So. Jonathan's writing a contract for you to sign. Oh no. <laughs> what? I mean, so you know what Eclipse does with Tried Imperium, where it takes the best parts of that and condenses it down into an easier to digest and tighter package. I feel, and again, I'm not completely qualified. It's only played through the ages one and a half times, so I don't have you know hundreds of games to base it on. But I feel like it takes the best parts of Through the Ages and condenses it down into an easier to understand and more streamlined package. If you if you play, I can play Nations with five people who know what they're doing and be done in three hours. Hmm, awesome. Well, my question and, is, is can I get your number so that when my wife calls to complain, she can, <laughs> she can, give, she can get you on speed dial? <laughs> she... She can talk to my wife, and then we'll both be in more trouble than we were when we started. <laughs> there we go. Good. We got a pact. Here we go. That's good. Okay. I do have one more question for you, John. Does yeah. your wife game with you very often? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that, that was one of the things that got me into the hobby, you know, being able to spend time with her that wasn't, you know, watching movies or TV and, you know, eventually spend more time with my kids. So, yeah, we, we game quite a bit whenever possible. Fantastic. I'm, I'm always excited when I find couples that can find some common ground in board gaming because i know there are some people who just they love the hobby but their significant other just isn't as excited about it or doesn't really enjoy gaming that much so she is she's not a fan of prototypes um (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately you know she'll usually only play a prototype once okay so i need her to play each one of my games once dead of winter she played a few more times than that but you know usually i run it by her early on and if she tells me, if she doesn't hate it, then I know I should probably keep working on it. That's a good kind of uh, measurement to go off of. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Vault Wars, she actually told me I had to get Vault Wars published. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. She's like, I like this game a lot, so get it published so I'll play it once it's out. That's great. Because I don't want to play this crappy prototype. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> No, but yeah, I think that's one of the things I'm really excited about with uh, Vault Wars. Is that I think it's something that I could actually bring out quite a bit. Where I work uh, during lunch hours, I've been able to get some games going on. I think that that Vault that's Wars awesome. kind of fits that kind of niche of what we're trying to go for. So I think it, I think you definitely. I'm glad you took your uh, wife's advice and decided to pursue Vault Wars because I think it's definitely going to be a, a good game for me in terms of my not just my gaming group but also my work gaming group during lunch so yeah um i was playing it with some friends I, I was playing the the very last uh changes that we did in playtesting last week with some friends um and she came up to the table and she's looking at it and she's like oh good all that stuff that i liked about it still in it that's why that'd great. be so painful about uh doing the playtesting process of of possibly cutting something that changes what you were hoping to accomplish with it. But I, th- I think that's a, a difficult balancing act to, to accomplish. But Yeah, and, and Ben was really good. You know, he we compromised. You know, he I, the workers were really integral to me. So, you know, we were able to keep those in as a stretch goal um, and have that 
that expansion in there. Yeah, I mean, when we played with the workers, I felt like they really added quite a bit, and it felt like a very, not completely different game, but it had a very different feel, because there were quite a few games where if I didn't have some of those workers, there's no way I would have won, or I just don't feel like I would have been able to accomplish as much as I was able to do. So I think I like that added element of the workers. Yeah, and I think I think having it as an expansion that you can add or take away is good, because it, you know, if you, if you want the quicker, slightly less strategic version of it, then you can play without them. But if you want the the slightly more, you know, uh, where vault priority is a little bit more important, mm-hmm. and you have some tougher decisions to make and some heavier decisions, then you can uh, you can mix them in. Now, when you guys play tested the workers' mansion, did you mix the heroes in with the workers, or did you deal up to at the beginning? like normal, and then just have the workers in the market. We just stelled out two and then had the workers in the market. So my absolutely favorite way to play is you put the heroes in the worker market. Hmm. That would be interesting. Oh, that is interesting. So that you can you can buy them, and it makes the higher, like when they come out and they're higher priced, it makes them way more interesting because the victory, you can still only score one hero at the end of the game, but you can adapt your strategy depending nice. on what comes out in the market. <laughs> I nice. like it. <laughs> I'm actually so it, really excited to try that. Yeah, uh, that, that's going to be in the rule book as a variant. The, the kind of the default way is the way you guys played it, so that's the way I've been testing it. Okay. But, I mean, I've tested it enough the other way that I know it works just fine. Excellent. I'm I'm excited to bust this out and try it again. So. Excellent. So did you, did you guys get to play the final 1.10 version? We actually did not get to play the final version, unfortunately. I think our schedules got a little hairy there yeah. towards the end. But well, that's I mean, that's totally understandable. So I, I, I feel I feel like we closed a lot of I mean we closed all the gaps that we were concerned about. So good, great. And I'm happy with where it's at now. Fantastic. Well, we're really excited whenever the game comes out, and I'm hoping that anybody listening, if you still have time, to back it on Kickstarter because it's definitely worth it. But anyways, John, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I know you're incredibly busy. We took you uh, away from uh, Prototype Night and all that. Oh, no, no. You guys were fine. Thank you for waiting. I appreciate it. No, not a problem. I guess this ends our show. Again, thank you so much to our guest, John, for joining us. And remember, until next time, if you're going to punch them, make sure you play them. (laughs) 